We are in the middle of this six-week sermon series where we're asking the question of all questions. How do you become like Jesus? How do you live a life of deeper discipleship? What does that look like? And so we've asked during this series, what is it? What is discipleship? Because I have a feeling that so many Christians are on a journey and they have no idea where the destination is. And so many churches and many Christians, we wander around and we see some cool things along the way, but wouldn't it be great if we knew the goal of discipleship? So a few weeks ago, we had three sort of visuals, did we not, right here on this table. And I said that the three goals of discipleship are embodied in these these uh, three metaphors. Image, fruit, and what? I'm going to preach that same message just again next week. What are they? Image, fruit, and multiply. So I said that the first uh, goal of the life of discipleship is to reflect an image. Reflect the very image of Jesus Christ. That when Christ looks on your life, what does he want to see? Does he want to see Jason or Jim or Fernando or Jansen? No. He wants to see his own face reflected back to him. And so I brought in the prop of a mirror that we are to reflect the person, the presence of Jesus Christ. And then I said, the second goal is for you to become what? A watermelon right? I had a fruit right here. And I said, the second goal is to bear fruit in the life of discipleship, not just to absorb all this information and all the beauty of Jesus Christ, but rather to live outwardly in bearing fruit in keeping with our life of following Jesus. The third goal in the life of discipleship is to multiply. And I had a multiplication sign, and um, I didn't receive any emails, but I suspect that some of you, when you came in the sanctuary that day, got a little PTSD, you know, from your Algebra 2 class. What are we doing here? Multiply. But that's really the third goal in the life of discipleship, to multiply. When Jesus said, make disciples, who was he referring to? Everyone. Everyone within the sound of Jesus' voice, all 11 disciples, and then all the early church reaching down to us. And so the question is, who are you discipling? Not only we are called to be a disciple, we are called to make disciples. And so those are the three goals of discipleships. I also said when you can identify sort of the, the characteristics and the marks of discipleship, you'll also know that discipleship is happening. And so I said discipleship is rational, discipleship is relational, and discipleship is missional. And so for the last few weeks, we've been in the four D's of this deeper discipleship. First, delight. We grow by cultivating and nurturing a disposition of delight. What's the proper motivation of discipleship? Does it just sort of happen naturally? No, Christians, we're supposed to develop and nurture a disposition of delight to the things of God. 
And so I said that delight is not simply the byproduct. It's not simply the, simply the outcome of our lives of discipleship. Rather, the delight is the proper motivation. It's the engine which gives deeper discipleship all of its fuel. Cultivate and nurture a disposition of delight in God. The second D was what? Discipline. There's a cheat sheet on the front of your bulletin if you can follow along. (laughs) Discipline, right? The second D is discipline. And I suggested that you grow by training your soul in core spiritual practices. The believer who fails to pursue spiritual disciplines, Bible reading, practicing the Sabbath. Is that a big one? Does some of you need to slow down so that you can go deep in Christ? I think all of us do. The Christian who never practices the spiritual disciplines will eventually plateau in their growth and miss out on the joy and the depth and the fellowship of following Jesus. So delight, discipline, and today, disobedience. No, you say, are you going to give a how-to? How to be disobedient? Not so fast. Here's a big idea. You be killing sin, or sin be killing you. You be killing sin, or sin be killing you. One of two things are always happening in the Christian life. Either you be killing sin, or sin be killing you. The Christian who's experiencing growth in the gospel will be a Christian who is relentlessly confronting their sin by repentance. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So said the Puritan Thomas Watson. Until sin be bitter, until sin tastes bitter in your mouth and in your life, Christ will not be sweet. Well, some of us say, well, I want Christ to be sweet, but what if I'm just going to ignore my sin? It never, ever works that way. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And so this morning, I have just two points of this sermon. And some of you say, two points? This is really going to throw me off. I'm just going to go home off kilter. I want the three points. Only two today. Sorry. And it's this. Very simply, repentance is central to growing more like Christ. Repentance is central to the life of deeper discipleship. And here's the second one. Repentance should occur at the center of our lives. Let me explain. First, repentance is central to growing more like Jesus. Did you know that St. Augustine kept the Psalms of repentance, often called the penitential Psalms, with him every night in his bed, often perusing them with tears? And so often we ask, well, how did these great giants of the faith actually become giants? Well, for St. Augustine, was reading and rereading and pouring out tears of these penitential psalms as he saw God work deeply in his life. The church father Tertullian of North Africa believed that he was born for one reason. What was it? 
Some of us in the Reformed tradition, well, to glorify God, to follow Jesus. Well, he said this, that he was born for one reason, to repent. Christendom once appeared before the emperor. What was the one message that God put on his heart, most important message that he had to preach to a Roman Caesar? Imagine choosing the theme of repentance. That seems a dangerous proposition to preach to a Roman emperor, but that's just what Christendom did. And so the question is, how did all these early church fathers understand the centrality of repentance in the life of faith? Well, they learned it from King David. Remember when King David was confronted by the prophet Nathan? You are the man. What did King David do? Did he him and ha? Did he say, well, get out of here, prophet. I'm the king. He did none of that. He said this, I have sinned against the Lord. They learned it from John the Baptist who went around, yes, eating locusts, but also preaching repentance. He said, bear fruit. And then he didn't know how to influence friends and uh, you know, make friends and influence people. He said, bear fruit, you brood of vipers. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The early church also learned it from Jesus himself who began his entire ministry with a very simple and clear message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They learned it from the apostles. The very first sermon preached in the early church in the book of Acts by the apostle Peter included a message of repentance. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so what do all these people have in common? King David, John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, Augustine, Tertullian. They all understood that repentance is central, vital, key to living a life of discipleship. And I wonder, do I, do you, do we moderns know the same? Do we understand that repentance is just not like a ticket that gets you in? Often, I often thought repentance is just sort of like a ticket that you show at the gate the usher will take it at a sporting event or at a concert, and then you, you, can, you can throw away the ticket. You never have to use it again, unless you go outside and you forget something or whatever. But, but it just gets you in, and then you just forget about the ticket once and for all. That's not how repentance works. Martin Luther, 1,600 years after Jesus, his very first thesis of the 95 famous thesis that he nailed to the church in Wittenberg Castle Church. This is the, the thesis that launched the most disruptive social force that Europe has ever known. Began the revival known as the, the Great Protestant Reformation. What did the very first thesis say? This is what he wrote on that door 500 years ago. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, keep the ticket. You're going to need it 
day in and day out to live the Christian life, to grow in the gospel, to follow Jesus. Don't throw the ticket away. Every day you're going to need to practice repentance. So that's the first point. The second point is this. Repentance is not only central to the life of discipleship, it should be practiced at the very center of our lives. What do I mean? Repentance should be practiced not only on the edges, not only on the periphery of our lives, but right at the very center. And so I've chosen this passage in Revelation as Jesus is talking to the church in Ephesus. And it's amazing to me that Jesus, I count at least nine positive things that Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. He knows their toil in the church. He knows their patient endurance in the midst of suffering. He knows they are bearing up for his namesake without growing weary. He commends the church for their spiritual gift of discernment. This is not some, you know, terrible church. This is a church of strong moral principles. This is a church that easily identifies the evil out there in the world. He says, you've identified the false apostles out there. You've identified the Nicolaitans out there, which was a group advocating cultural compromise in the form of sexual immorality and the worship of idols. And so with just a little bit of sanctified imagination, you and I might easily picture an evangelical Presbyterian church being described in Ephesians chapter 2. We're not compromising on sexual ethics. We're not compromising on theological integrity. We're not compromising or kowtowing to the latest cultural trends so prevalent in our world. We're not doing that. And so Jesus commands the church in Ephesus of many good deeds, of strong moral principles, of sound theological insights. And you say, well, what's, what's bad about the church? How does Jesus have any ground to stand and tell this church to repent? This seems like a healthy, strong church that's active in their community, overflowing all around. But he says, there's one thing. There's one thing so important that Jesus says, I might remove your lampstand from you. Lampstands in the book of Revelation was a symbol of the church. So Jesus is saying something extremely serious. For this one thing, I am going to unchurch you. I'm going to remove your lampstand. What was it? Look at verse 4 again of Revelation chapter 2. He says, But I have this against you. And what he says next should hit right at our heart. Should bring me, should bring you, should bring churches of all sizes and denominations to tears. He says this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Faded fervor, prayerless piety, 
a loveless loyalty. The great commandment was being marginalized in their lives to love God with their whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so for all the other ways that Jesus commended the church, this one thing periled and jeopardized the very existence of the church in Ephesus. You've lost your first love. Nine great things, but for this one thing, it's so important. It's so important to become like Jesus. It's so important to practice deep discipleship. Here's the one thing. Have you lost your first love? I ask it of you just as I ask it of myself. He says Jesus gives the remedy, however. He says this in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, turn away from the things that you make you lose sight of the beauty of Christ. Turn away from the things that deaden your appetite for the Word of God. Turn away from those things which speed your life up so you have no time for prayer. Repent. It might be, not be a surprising to you that the great commandment matters to Jesus. Christ is not honored when everything else is more intriguing, when everything else is more fascinating, when everything else is more rewarding and interesting than Christ. And so Jesus tells us and tells me and tells the church in Ephesus, return to your first love. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. But the central sin the central one sin, the sin that puts a church like Ephesus in jeopardy is not a sin of passion. It's not a sin of cultural compromise. But really, it's a sin of passionlessness. And so Jesus says, if you're going through the motions, if you're simply going through the motions in the Christian life, repent. Do the things you did at first. Come back to your first love. And so do you begin to understand that true repentance hits not at the periphery of your life, but right at the very center. Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Anything less than that calls for repentance. Most of us dabble on the very edges of repentance. We think, oh, let me just get a few victories over here, maybe a few victories over here, but they're all on the periphery, on the edges of our Christian life. Jesus goes for the central thing, the most, the most important thing. Have you, have I lost my first love? For me, I felt like Jesus saying this to me this week. Jesus didn't come and die so that you, Jason, could rest on your laurels coasting on the experiences you had with Christ 20 years ago. One Puritan tells a story of three men asking one another what made them leave sin. The first says, I think of the joys of heaven. The second says, well, I think of the terrors of hell. But the third, and I think this is true as well, 
I think of the love of God, and that makes me forsake sin. When do we repent? When do we become so afflicted in our souls that we want to turn? People repent when they want Jesus more than they want sin. People repent when they love God more than they love their sin. And so true repentance really occurs at the center of our very lives, not at the periphery. Come back to your first love. That is a call to repentance daily, continuously. Who among us does not need to be called back to our first love? You know if you're married that if uh, you're like me, you wooed and wowed your spouse during the dating. And I remember Lisa's family saying, this is just the beginning, butter, Buster. You better keep doing this, right? But it's tough. Come back to your first love. That's not unlike a relationship with Christ. And so Apostle Paul sounded this theme again and again, one time in front of preaching in front of King Agrippa. Because Paul knew that true repentance is not simply sin avoidance or sin acknowledgement or sin recognition. He recognized that confession of our sin is only half the battle. And so this is what Paul says in Acts 26, verses 19 through 22. Listen very carefully. He says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. He said that all his message was that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. There's a two-fold act of true repentance, turning from sin and turning to God. Turning from sin is like pulling the arrow out of your stomach, out of the womb. Turning to God is like pouring in the balm of healing. The repenting prodigal son not only left his life with the harlots in the far country, but he also did what? He made his way home. He went to his father. He longed to be with his father. That's what true repentance is. St. Augustine said that before his conversion, that he actually confessed and begged God for the power against this sin that tormented him. But often his heart whispered within him, not yet, Lord, not yet, O Lord, because he really did not want to leave his sin. Many times false repentance plagues our lives. People often repent not because sin is sinful, but because it is painful. A thief is sorry when he is caught, but not because he is... uh, because he stole, right? Like Pharaoh who is troubled by the plagues, but not for the sin of enslaving people called the Israelites. And so godly sorrow is sorry for the offense rather than for the punishment. And so do you begin to see today in your life of deeper discipleship that you can never become like Jesus 
that I can never become like Jesus unless repentance is a habit, is a continuous lifestyle that I crucify the flesh to put on Christ. The most repentance that we need today occurs not on the periphery, not on the edges. Just give me a little victory on the edges of my life, but no, right at the center of our life of discipleship. Oh, Lord, help me not to lose my first love. God, help me not go through the motions. Help me not become cold in worship, cold to prayer, cold to the Word of God. Help me not neglect the practices that make, you more, make me more like Jesus, that help me love God with my, all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. As Thomas Watson, the Puritan writer, once said, Christ is never loved until sin is loathed. And so do we ever pray these type of prayers? Lord, let me particularly loathe the sin in my life that places you at arm's length, that makes my heart grow cold, and makes me lose my first love. God, bring me back to my first love. The last question is this. Why don't we see more transformation in the church? All of us, we want to change. All of us want to be more like Christ. Why don't we see change becoming habitual transformation in our lives together? I can talk personally. In 2009, it really was repentance that brought closeness and increased intimacy in my own marriage. When I began to say, look at all, I stopped saying, look at all Lisa's problems, Lord. Can you help her? Because she has a lot of problems. But I began to say this, Lord, I want to work on Jason. Lord, change me. Lord, forgive me. I don't want to fix Lisa, I want to fix my relationship with you. And guess what? That eventually gave space for Lisa to say, Lord, Jason has a lot of problems, but I'm going to let you deal with him. Lord, I want to be changed. I want to be forgiven. And so it really was repentance that began to bring the joy and the delight and the communication and the closeness back into our marriage after a very hard season. It was repentance. And truly, I believe that for two Christians who are married, most problems are not marriage problems. Rather, they are sanctification problems. Both spouses need to crucify the flesh, but instead, what do they do? they decide to crucify one another. How does that work? Is that working for anyone? Crucify your own sin and see the joy and see the connection begin to flow into your life. The Christian life is one of continuous repentance. And now I understand maybe what I didn't understand in my younger years as a Christian that repentance, far from being only a sign of failure, is also a sign of my closeness to God. It's a sign of increasing maturity. 
It's a sign of increasing humility. It's a sign that the Spirit is actually working in my life. Why? Because I'm typically blind to my own sin. My wife can see it, and she loves to point it out sometimes. Just as I like to see her sin and point hers out to it. But when I see my own sin, when you begin to see your own sin, you say, well, I don't really experience much of the Holy Spirit. But when you see your own sin, I guarantee you the Spirit is working in your life to make you more like Christ. Fill in the blank. The sin issue that I most need to deal with right now is blank. Is what is it? Repentance is what brings you closer to Jesus. And so when we're asking ourselves, why don't we grow? Why is my life not being transformed by the power of God through the Spirit, in the faith? Could it be it's because we've forgotten the practice of St. Augustine who slept with and read continually the penitential psalms, often crying on his bed to God to make him more like Christ? Have we forgotten the first message of Jesus? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Have we forgotten that the very first sermon, not incidentally in the early church, the book of Acts, included this message of repentance? We moderns have not graduated from this very same message which allows us to be like Jesus. And don't you begin to see also how this message of continuous repentance is actually connected with slowing down and practicing the spiritual disciplines, what we talked about last week. Why? Because most of us are so sped up in the Christian life, doing our own thing, that we can't even put our thumb on the sin issues that we need to repent from. All we feel is the tension and the affliction and the pain and the suffering, and we're often blind to the deep ways that God wants to renew us from the inside out, not only from the outside in, but from the inside out through repentance. And when we're so sped up, we become disconnected to ourselves, so we have no clue where to begin. And so repentance is often tied to practicing the spiritual discipline so God could say, okay, now that I have your attention. Here's like nine things I want you... No, but God's gracious, right? He says, just just one thing, Jason. If you would do this, one thing. So what is the one thing that you say, God, show me one thing that I want more than Jesus? That's where repentance begins. When you cry out to God and say, God, I want to love you. I don't want to abandon my first love. Help me be someone who repents. Last story. This summer, I was reading stories from the Great Awakening during this period in colonial America where the Spirit of God was heavy upon the churches, heavy on the people of God. There's a story of Jonathan Edwards presiding over a massive prayer meeting. 800 men gathered to pray. And during that meeting of men, wouldn't you know it, a woman sent a message asking the men to pray for her husband. How dare she? The note described a man who, in spiritual pride, 
had become unloving, proud, and difficult. Edwards read the message in private and then thinking that perhaps the man described might be present right there in that prayer gathering, he made a bold request. He read the note to the 800 men present that day. And then he asked if the man who had been described would raise his hand so the whole assembly could pray for him. What happened next? 300 men raised their hands. Each had been convicted uh, through the Holy Spirit of his need for change and their sin, and they longed to confess. They longed to get right before God. That was in the midst of revival. If you look at the whole history of the church, that's what always happens in revivals. When God's Spirit is heavy upon a people, what begins to happen? Confession of sin. Turning to God. 